Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Oh, the shot, babe. Has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. So welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark and Matt Macklin, and we are still very much enjoying our make or break series. Good chat with George Groves last week, so if you didn't get the chance to listen to that yet, then do go back and and check it out. Uh, And today's guest is somebody who we said that we were going to get on when we did the very first one of these with Anthony Crawler, because one of Anthony's make or breaks that he talked about against Kieran Farrell came as a direct result of the defeat that was handed to him in unexpected circumstances for Crawler, certainly in his team, by the man we're speaking to on this episode. And I'm aware, of course, that you know who the guest is because we've advertised who the guest is. But even so, I do still like to give it a, a bit of a build-up and a reveal just to revisit the circumstances of the fight. So it happened in April in 2012 at the Oldham Leisure Centre. And Crawler, as I say, he was the favourite. He was the reigning and defending British champion. And he was on a roll after some good performances. And people were talking about a potential fight with Ricky Burns for a world title being possibly next later that year. Uh, And as I say, he was very heavily backed by the people around him. He was with Hatton Promotions at the time and also by the bookmakers. And they had chosen their opponent for this fight. They'd given a voluntary to a fighter who was very well respected who had achieved a good deal as an amateur and as a professional. But the theory was that he was coming towards the end uh, and he was there for the taking. He won an ABA title, uh, young at 18 or 19, then turned pro, uh, proud Liverpudlian. Uh, had achieved success during the career, as I say, a couple of English titles. He boxed for a European title. 
He'd had a huge win against Stephen Foster Jr. at the MEN in Manchester to take the WBU title. But in his previous fight in January of that year, he'd had a bruising defeat against Emiliano Marsili. And although not old in years, he'd had 36 pro fights and it had been a real career taking on proper challenges. And that is why he was picked. He was picked because he was a good name, but he wasn't expected to cause any problems. Derry Matthews, how wrong they were. <laughs> yeah, he was very wrong. So just listening back to that, what kind of memories does it does it evoke? Because where were you mentally after that Marsili defeat? Were you thinking about, about packing it in or what was going through your mind? Yeah, I'd already retired. At one point, Andy, in my career, um, I've had a, I've had a successful career. I think I achieved what I thought I could finally achieve. You know, I won many titles previous, and then later on in life, I come back as another stint. I was with Oliver Arson at the time, um, and I got beat by Marsili, and then the Anthony qualified come up, and I always remember saying like Danny Vaughan and George Vaughan for me, they were they were my motivators. They done everything, you know. Then walking in the gym. It made me go up a level in work. Um, Matt will understand. Certain coaches gel with certain fighters. And, you know, I got offered the qualified. And then I had I spoke to Danny Vaughan. And I think we had five weeks' notice. And then Danny just said, if you're going to take the fight, you need to be up here basically tomorrow. I moved to Scotland. And then I never come home till, till the day of the weigh-in. Um, and, and we never put everything possible I could in the training and I always knew that I was a massive puncher and I knew Anthony was vulnerable um, he's a tremendous fighter but I knew I had the beating of him and that's why I took the fight but I, I was in a dark place and if, if Anthony would have beat me obviously I would have had to retire but luckily enough for myself I, I performed that night and I, and I got the win What's it like that kind of that backs to the wall situation because Sometimes I hear people talk about a fight being all or nothing for a fighter. You know, if if he, if he loses this one, then he's, he's finished at that level and he's probably going to have to pack it in. And they'll say, and I always find this odd, they'll say, and for that reason, the pressure's off. And I kind of think to myself, well, not really, because your career's on the line. I, I can kind of understand the point they're making. But at the same time, that's the ultimate pressure, isn't it? Yeah, the, the, a lot of pressure was on me. You know, I was I was about to, if I was to got beat, you know, I was about to, I was about to retire. I've got mortgages to pay and I have bills to pay and I had a family to look after. Um, so you know, the pressure was on me, but at the same time, it was on him. I was going to Auntie's backyard. Um, I've boxed everyone all over the country in in, in their own backyards. I'd, I'd rather be the away fighter if I'm honest. I love I love the pressure. Um, and certain pressure, you know, I I, I get a, a boost out of it and going to going to Oldham that night was, you know, I was under a lot of pressure, but I knew I had to win it. Uh, every day I had in the, and they had to win the fight. And, you know, Anthony had a tremendous trainer, a t- tremendous um, camp. He had a good stable at the time. Their stables were probably one of the busiest stables in the country, um, if not the best stable, I'd say. And, but it was just one of them, one of them things where, you know, I had to go and win. I had to go and perform, and luckily enough, I did. 
So, Matt, what were you thinking when when this fight was made? Because from what I remember, and uh, I was all over this one because, as I say, it was the first main event I I commentated on for Sky, and I was quite nervous about it. To be honest, you know, you want to do well, you want to make an impression. So I was following it kind of as rapidly as I could from from weeks and weeks out as soon as it got announced, and the the groundswell of opinion really was that this was this was a a good bit of matchmaking by by Team Crawler because Derry's Derry, everybody knows him. He's a good fighter. He's achieved a lot, but everybody agreed that he was he was kind of on the downward curve and that Crawler would get the win um, and it would be a worthwhile win and that he'd move on to greater things. I mean, how were you how were you looking at it? Because people on the inside often see it a bit differently. Yeah, I mean that was definitely the the general consensus. As you, you kind of set the scene nicely, there it was. There he ticked the boxes and he was a name. He was from Liverpool. There was a bit of the Manchester-Liverpool rivalry. He'd been on Sky many times, so he had good profile. So, you know, it was a good name, a good opponent for Cruller to, you know, push Cruller, be a good fight, TB-friendly fight, but Cruller should definitely come through it and move on to, to bigger and better things. But I think with Cruller, because he's, you know, he's, he's got good feet and he's, but he, he likes to stay in that mid-distance and exchange and work the body. And obviously Derry, could really crack, especially with his left hook. And well, both hands really, but he, you know, he, he had a really good left hook. And um, yeah, I remember when he stopped, it was a shocker, really, because uh, you know, like you say, that the momentum of both guys' careers was Crawler was the one moving forward. I mean, Derry just said himself that he'd already retired in his head at one stage, and then this kind of came up, and it was a bonus. And I was actually thinking, was Derry was talking there? It's actually amazing to think he was going to retire before this fight. And then when you think what he got out of his career after that, it's quite remarkable, really. But as you said as well, you know, we see a lot of fighters that are mollycoddled and really looked after and protected. And they've got these records, but really they've fought nobody. And we talk about real records where guys who were, you know, maybe built, built up a little bit early doors. But then after that, they've been in lots of 50-50 fights. They've had their losses. They've come back. They've reinvented themselves. They've learned from their mistakes. They've improved you know, and then they've lost again and they've come again. And, you know, sometimes you can look at a record like that and it can be deceiving. You know, sometimes you, you might get a guy who's 24 and 5 who could really fight. And you might get a guy who's 20 and 0 who can't fight because he hasn't fought nobody. But, you know, I think with, with the um, with, with, with Derry, it was interesting. Sometimes circumstances outside of the box, your boxing career, you know, he mentioned he'd gone with Oliver Harrison, then he was back with Danny and Georgie Bourne. And, you know, we talk about great trainers and we talk about it regularly, me, me and yourself, Andy. It, it, it's not one glove fits all. You know, certain guys, certain trainers, it's certain fighters, not just from a stylistic point of view, personality point of view. And, you know, it's um, Georgie and Danny were made for Derry. You know, that, that's just it. And, you know, the, I know he had great days with Oliver Harrison, but Danny Vaughan and Georgie, <laughs> Aries men, you know what I mean? And I think at that that point in his career, we we, the general public, we didn't look that deep into it. We, we we don't know where what was going on in Derry's life prior to certain losses or prior to that fight. So it's easy to just look at the service, look at their record, look at your last fight, go, ah, he's done it, he's finished, you'll beat him. You know, it's um in boxing, you're as good as your last fight and you're as bad as your last fight. I mean, it's a good thing and a bad thing because people write you off so quickly. Then one win and you can turn it all around again. And I suppose at that point in Derry's career, 
with the, we, the general boxing public, had probably already written him off. But then one good one win against Brother, who was a, on a real ascent in his career, and all of a sudden Derry's back in the game, and that's that's what's so bad and so good about boxing. It's ruthless when you're on the the wrong end of it because you're just written off. But then it's also great because you got a guy Derry who's about to retire, and bang, one big win on Sky TV, and all of a sudden, you know, he's back in the money. So, Derry, when it came to when it came to the training team and, and, and the camp up in Scotland, how much did they have to try and do with you mentally, if you like? Because I mentioned there before that there was a lot of pressure on you. I understand the argument that, that people make that I referred to is that if you're not expected to win, then the pressure is to a degree off. But what, what you do often see with someone who's possibly looking for one final hurrah is that they get in there and they're looking to give it a go. They're going to give it a go, but they don't really convince you that they actually think they're going to win. But that wasn't the case with you at all. You were convinced all the way through that you weren't just going to be there to to give it a good crack and, and see what happened. Your, your team, yourself, you totally convinced yourselves that you were going to win this fight. That was what was going to happen. I picked the round as well where I was going to win. Um, I, I said what round I was going to knock him out in. Um, just going back to like that, I'm, I'm one of them. Me, where my trainers, you know, they know if I'm going to cheat, they'll know I'm going to cheat because they just they know you. Um, they could tell me to run through a wall, I'll run through a wall because I, I had the respect for them. And as Matt has been saying then, that certain fighters gel with certain coaches and. I just work with Danny and I just and, and George obviously, but it's just like you know, they're getting up at six o'clock in the morning, taking me to Scotland on Rotten Royal in the ice cold, it was freezing cold, and I just knew that my determination was gonna get me through everything and, and I know I could fight, I can and I can punch you either hand and you know, I, I'm a, I always say I'm from a council estate, I was born to fight. Um, and I felt that call of being a bit like you know, silver spoons in the boxing world. Um, and I'd always wanted to box the best. My second, I remember my second professional fight, I boxed the Commonwealth Games competitive in Manchester. He'd, he'd, he'd been in the Commonwealth Games. I boxed him on my second pro fight. Just and Wally? Then, yeah, just Wally. No, one tough man. <laughs> one tough man. One <laughs> tough man, Matt. Crazy man. No, it may. No, it opponent. I boxed him in my second fight. He went, he went on then to, I think he draws with Steve Foster and Steve Bell. That's right. So he's at, yeah, and, and I, I remember getting out the ring that day, uh, sorry, that night, and Frank Warren come up to me, put his arm around me and said, you've just proved you can fight and he doubled me wages. So I was happy about that. <laughs> Do you know, you know, listen, you, know, you were talking then and, and even when I just kind of finished speaking myself and Andy was talking, I thought, you know, at that stage in your career, and we talk about the trainers, it wouldn't have mattered if you'd have trained with Freddie Roach or Buddy McGurr or Angelo Dundee. No one would have been as good for you to train with than George and Danny Vaughan. Because, yeah. and, I, and I'll tell you why. Because they believed in you. And yeah. then believing in you made you believe in yourself. And that was, yeah. that was 90% of the battle at that point in your career. Yeah, 100%. Even the first time, that's when, when I... I, tw- I think it was 26 and I stopped. I had a lot of, a bit of time out. And the only reason I had that time out was because was George, who knew me better than anyone, he just put his arm around me and just said, that's it, we're done. 
you, you've had a great career, you've had a good journey. Um, go and have a... Now, I, I, for me, I think it was a, his way of saying, you're having a break. But he just said to me, you're retiring, we're done. And then I, I, I sort of was coming back a bit and he, he advised me to go to Manchester, to Oliver Harrison. He just said, you need a fresh start. And for me, that's a sign of a, of a good person, but more than anything, a good man. Because he knows me that I need a little fresh start somewhere else. And then I always went back and I've always you had probably, respect. He could probably see you've gone a bit stale. That's it. He, 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 and he's the same with every fighter he's had. I think over the years he knows that he can't get any more out of you. So me advise you, you've got a bit stale, push on with your career. And I think that's why he's very successful. Hey everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes, it's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Because you've been at it a long time, haven't you? You you mentioned the start of your career there, and I remember you telling me in the build-up to this fight, I'm pretty sure it was, that when you turned pro after the ABAs in 2002, you made your debut in January 2013, but made the decision in, in, in 2002 that at that point, you were the only professional fighter in the city of Liverpool. Paul Smith followed you pretty, pretty quickly, but that... I, I thought that was absolutely mind-blowing when you told me that because you look at the city now and there's, I don't know, there could be 50. I mean, it's it's unthinkable to a, to a to kind of like younger generation of fight fans, if you like, that at that point, 20 years ago, not quite 20 years ago, there was one and it was you. Yeah, well, at one point in my career, I mean, a lot of people that fight as no dice, the Tony Holland, Alex Moon, the Berg brothers, Mulholland brothers, you know, they were my spark, Gary Cornell. They, these are old school fighters these are proper proper fighters they were my sparring partners and then all of a sudden it's all retired and it was only me I was the only professional fighter in the city and then the likes of Paul Smith and all them come later on because they, they were, obviously they went to Commonwealth Games and I never got selected Mark Moran got selected at Edemy you go just after uh, me Don't pro just after me but did, you, did, you, did you go to games Matt? I thought you went to no, games I went in 2001 after the ABAs yeah, I went to I went to season later, two thousand and two, and then two, I went I turned over two thousand two because I never got selected for the games in Ma, in Manchester. Who went? Who went to the, uh, Mark Moran? Did he get picked instead of you? Mark Ma, Moran, and I, I couldn't argue with him because he was he was a top amateur fighter. He he was a, he was a top England international. Um, but that year, he never went. In, he never went to see the ABAs. Um, he knew I was going in. So his coach told him not to go in because he'd already been selected for the games. And I stopped every single person apart from the final um, where I boxed me, me former England teammate, Fred Holmes, who's, who sadly yeah. passed away. But me and Fred were, were dead close, went away everywhere with England, England roommates, and I had to box him in the national final. What was um, that like? It, it was hard because going away with Fred, he was like, 
he was the he was the tough guy. Believe it or not, he was like a southpaw. I hated sparring him, and I used to always be the weight below. And for the ABAs, I, I went up to bantamweight and I got the win against against Fred. Um, and as I said, sadly he passed away. But no, I've I've been in touch recently with his family, and I've, I've sent some photos over to them. You turned pro then after the ABAs. You you didn't get because Mark was Mark around was picked for the Manchester. Yeah, yeah. Mark, Mark was Mark was picked for the games, um, so I just I decided to turn over. And then I remember going for a meeting with Stephen Vaughan. Stephen Vaughan, Gary Metcalf, who looked after me, um, who's Danny's brother and Georgie's son. And I I went for a big meeting over at Chester City where they owned the football club. And while I was over there, I, the first thing I said is, "It's okay, me turn." So. So okay me turning professional, but who's going to train me? I need a trainer. Because at this time in, in, in boxing, amateur boxers weren't allowed to go near professionals. Um, imagine though, when, when, you, when you were talking, I think it was the only professional fight. Because I remember at that time, we were, you know, you, was, you come down to Crystal Palace yeah. when I was kind of established down there, yeah. that time, bro, obviously. But on the amateur setup down at Crystal Palace, I mean, it was literally, you had Liverpool and London absolutely yeah. dominating. And in Liverpool, you had the Raton, you had the Sully, and obviously yeah. you were the Sully. And it was just yeah. like national champion after national champion. I mean, there was just that many of them. It was unbelievable. But to think then, it was really when you and Paul and the Smiths and Value and all that lot went, that was kind of the influx then of what become, you know, a dominant, good professional scene in Liverpool. Yeah, and I've said it for ages. I think that the professional scene in Liverpool is, is booming. Um, look, we don't have was to look at group, Penny? It was that group oh, of that, 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 that group, and I think even the group coming through now, Matt, no likes to Callum Smith. I mean, for me, Callum's a superstar. He's he's elite level. He's, he's you know, and, but he, going back to ours, we had like me, the Smith brothers, John Watson, Nathan Bruff, and then the later on, we had Paul, likes of Paul Edwards in them. So, you know, the, Stephen Burke, um, so we're from a good we're from good stock. Well, you had them good amateurs, didn't you? David Burke, Stephen Burke, Mark the Mullallans, and they never really they never turned pro, did they? Or they did they didn't really do it. But then when you and Paul and that turn, you were successful in the pros. Yeah, we, we were successful. Um, I think that, and I, it's weird because even like you know, I, I always look back and think this city should have had well more champions than 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 we than we've had. Um, you know, we're a proper fighting city, and you only have to look at the previous ABA champions and how many. I always look at Mark Manan, for instance, and Tom Stalker as well. You agree? Tom's been a number one in the world as an amateur, but to, to, to get it over to the pros is completely hard. And Mark Manan was the, was the same. Mark Manan for me was he was he was special. You couldn't hit him. You were, I think well, Mark, was Mark, Mark was more was a good mate of mine. We, we, yeah. we, we, I was well with Mark. Half a dozen times around the world with him, good kid. Yeah, he, he was a top southpaw. No one could hit him, but then as it transmitted over to the professional game, he just it, it didn't work for him. Just did not work. Well, in that ABAs that you won in two thousand and two, there there were four of you, four Liverpool fighters: you, Paul, um, David Mulholland, and uh, and Neil Perkins, who who got a world championship medal as well, and and did turn pro, but uh, but nothing particularly came of it. So. To get back to April 2012, 
it was the first time that you'd fought for a British title, which was pretty surprising given the level you'd been at and given that it was your 37th fight. What was... There's a strange one, right, hand because I should have won a British title. I beat John Simpson, who was British champion, but I, could, but I couldn't claim his belt for some reason. But I beat him. And he was still and he was still British champion after the fight. How was that that? That was at the Olympia, wasn't it? Yeah, at the Olympia, yeah. Don't get me wrong, it was a close fight. I was put on my ass and got backed up, but I, I beat a British champion and they never give me the belt. What was that? Because I was we were boxing with a WBU at the time, and WBU was what Ricky Atten had, and it was it was a big massive belt. The WBU world title, it was a massive belt, and at the time I think they were seen that as a Frank Warren was seen as a it's a world title fight. Um but looking back now, I should have had a British title outright. So what was the plan against against Crawler? I mean, had, had the two of you sparred ever? Did did you know him particularly well? I mean, what was what was the strategy that they that that, that Vaughan's came up with? Would would sparred before, um and anyone who knows me knows me that I don't think I've ever won a spar. I'm the worst spar in the world. Um but I just knew that we had we had it in the tank. I was a big puncher, and we're in the build up to the fight, and you can go back on Twitter or whatever. I kept saying I want to hit him with an uppercut, and Danny had me practicing this uppercut, double uppercut, and that's the first shot we put him over the double uppercut, and you just the rare to see. You don't really see many people told him, but I added that I was going to get get inside eventually, and when it did start to land the bombs. He was going to feel it, and luckily enough, he did. I remember one of the things I said actually on the on the ring walks was that the tail of the tape came up, and obviously you're the same weight, but according to that, you're the same height as well. But physically, you're nothing like each other because you're kind of you've got wide, rangy shoulders on you, long arms, and Crawler was a lot more kind of compact and. It was it was it was a real moment that when you put him down in the third round because everybody knew what everybody thought they knew what was going to happen. Then all of a sudden, no one knew what was going to happen. Yeah, and even the first round, he out jabbed me, which which was strange for me. He jabbed the head off in the first round, and I thought he shouldn't be beating me to the jab. I want to have a little bit of a tear up. And back in the corner, Danny just said, "You've got to when you get close, make sure you you let the big." The big power shots go. What we've been practicing, and you know, luckily enough, as I keep saying, it come off, and you know, I went on to, I went on to get the win. And totally wrong, the stoppage was a bit premature. I'd say so, but I think the referee was have been thinking about saving him for another day. Yeah, you know, stop- going up. To, sorry, you know, I was going to say, you know, going up to Scotland for the month or the five weeks. Yeah, do you think that the extra bit of maybe solitude give you a bit more mental focus to, for the fight and the mental yeah. preparation probably the, the thing that you'd been lacking previous fights yeah you, you only have to ask um, the, the people who, who, who was around me in Scotland I had no telly I was living in a, in a one bedroom flat no telly no no nothing basically um, I was just eating sleeping and drinking training um, it was freezing cold up there and that's just and to be honest, that's what I loved. And then that's when I realised that my, the, next, the next part of my career, I need to spend a lot of time away from home and focus on training camps. And that's why I, you know, I was lucky enough to go out to Marbella, LA, New York, Lanzarote, Tenerife, 
but I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time away there. So how scared of losing and how scared of retirement and life after professional boxing were you? Because 10 years of a pro career, and, and yeah, you'd, you'd achieved things, but probably not what you'd wanted to. I mean, if, if you'd lost and that had, had been it, would you have been able to find any peace with your boxing career? I mean, would it, would, how hard would it have been for you? It, you know what? Uh, it's hard to say because I, I wouldn't know. Um, I just, I, I just would not, would not know. Um, I always knew that I wanted to be a coach and be involved in the sport, and then I think later on in my career, that's when I, I decided that I'm going to set myself something up where I'm going to fall back to, like my gym. I always knew I wanted to be a gym. I wanted to have an amateur boxing club um, and put something back in the community where I'm from. So later on in my career, I, I planned that. But in, in the first part of my career, if I would have got beaten out of my collar, I just don't know what, I, what I've done. I just don't know where I'd be or what position I'd have been in. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Well, that's that's always going to provide some kind of some kind of motivation. And one thing I do remember about the build up to that fight, and it was something that you that you referred to yourself, and then you referred to it, I think, in the post fight interview, was this idea that that people were treating you as a stepping stone. Uh, and, and it's something Anthony always say, always says that he never said that. But that was was that a good bit of psychology for you to use, or, or did did you hear him or, him or members of his team use that phrase? Yeah, they, they were calling me as, as a stepping stone. I think, and I, I think the national papers and, and my local papers were calling me a stepping stone for him. Uh, I think that at the time, don't say quote on this, but I'm, I don't know whether Paul Smith was writing an article for Liberal Echo at the time. I think he, he put a bit in like that, you know, I need, I'm a stepping stone for that. I need to go on to bigger and better things. Uh, so I'm guessing it could have come from that because obviously Paul was stable mate to him and. And and it was you know me and Paul were former teammates and former former pals, but obviously he was with Joe Gallagher, so he, he stuck with a stable mate. But at the same time, it's just everyone, you know, Colour was the blue eye. Um, he was also matched to Box Pereira after me. That was already set up for the Manchester for the MEN Arena. I heard that Ricky and them had big plans for him to to fight Pereira out there and make something big out of him, but. You know, I, I upset them and, and believe it or not, they didn't even have me under contract. They didn't even have a, a, a rematch clause in the contract. So that's how much of a, you know, how much they must have favoured Anthony to, to win the fight. I might be skipping ahead a little bit here. And Anthony, um, sorry, Andy, rein me in if I am. But how did beating Kroller compare to, in terms of happiness and, you know, compared to how when you, you beat... Um, Tommy Coyle, because that was a similar situation, wasn't it? Yeah, it it, it, it was. Um, but I think beating Crawler was like, because Manchester's only around the corner from us, really. Um, and it sounds mad. He had a gym full of scousers. 
like the, obviously all the Smith brothers, Smith brothers were there. Um, and I wanted was to the last chat around Liverpool prior to the fight. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. I was fighting a mag. I was fighting. We hate mags. That's, that's how. Well, we don't. But that's how it comes across. Um, he's a Man United. He's a Man United fan. So, and I'm a big Liverpool fan. And it's it's mad to think that we only boxed in a sports centre. It's crazy to think that. Uh, and then to go and tell a 10,000 10, seat stadium out the second time, obviously we're on the, the Tony Belly Wondercar, but we still sold it. Uh, it was a yeah, it was it was a big it was a big thing. And I think at the time, I think social media had just come out, so there was lots of there was lots of stick on that, a lot of banter on that um, between all my friends and the Manchester friends, and then and the other agent or someone who was acting as the agent who. Who kept coming on, giving us a bit of stick, um, and then it just it rocked up from there. So Matt mentioned it there that fight with with Tommy Coyle. So after you beat Anthony Crawley, you went straight into a European title fight and British title defence against Gavin Rees. Uh, that one didn't go your way. Then there was Prize Fighter. Then there was the return with Crawler, which ended in a draw and. That was for the vacant Commonwealth title, so obviously nobody won. So it was still on the line, it was still up for grabs, and you went away to hold to box Tommy Coyle in July 2013. And and again, this is... It wasn't quite as crucial as, as the Crawler fight, but at the same time, if you lost to Coyle, would you have retired then as well? Was that going to be it? Because once again, it was a trip into the into your opponent's backyard and and it was getting to late on in the fight and you were down on the cards and, and, and maybe we were looking at seeing you for the last couple, for the last time. That would be the, the last couple of rounds that we would see of, uh, of Derry Matthews until you unleashed that left hook. I, almost, I couldn't agree with you as well. It's, it's, it's been a rollercoaster of a journey and, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. And, I mean, I, Tommy is a big puncher. He's, he's a sharp puncher, I should say. But I'm lucky he's not a huge puncher because I, I don't think I won a second of the fight. I don't think I won any rounds in the fight up, up until I come up with the left hook. Um, and if I would have got beat to Tommy, I think that was the end of the journey. And, you know, go, going back to what you just said there, and about I, I jumped right in to fight Gavin Reese. I wanted to fight the best. I could have defended my British title against anyone. I could have picked someone I had to, but I want, I want, I'm a fighter. I don't want to kid the public. I'm like a bit like Matt. Like Matt, you want you want to fight the best. You don't want to fight Mickey Mouse people. You want you want to fight the best, and you know. And, and I I felt that I always boxed the best, and I don't think Eddie ain't quite like me because he always seemed to put me up against his his lads, uh, and he always went out of his way to get me in the opposite corner against one of his lads. But it's amazing how these things can. You can find yourself in the same situation again, really, because as you say, you know, you were away from home and Tommy Cole was a big ticket seller and and the, the plan was, the narrative in boxing is quite easy to decipher most of the time. The plan was that he would, that he would win that fight. But then off the back of that, of course, you then kicked on to what was very nearly a, a third fight with Anthony Crawler for what would have been a world title because you won the WBA interim title and that put you at number one with the WBA and that was early-ish, about April time, March, April time, 2015 against Tony Luis. And 
around that time, Crawler had been supposed to box Richard Abril. Abril had then retired. Darlis Perez had become champion. Crawler then got the fight with Perez in the July, but it was a draw, so they boxed again in November. And you ended up fighting Terry Flanagan for the WBO. But how close were you to to a third fight with Crawler for a, for a world title? Because that would have been that would have been tremendous. Liverpool Manchester. Uh, a third fight of the trilogy for, for a big, big belt. Yeah, I just, to be honest, I don't think John Gallagher wants the fight. Um, I think I'm sort of his bogeyman. If you if you get what I mean, I just think I had the beating of him every day of the week. Um, and going back to that, it's like, I'm, well, what, even still now, I think anyone who's WBA interim world champion, if the champion retires or he's out through injury, you know, within 90 days, you rewarded the full title. I think I've been the only fighter who hasn't been given the full belt. Um, it happened to Scott Quigg. Scott Quigg was interim champion, got put to world champion, drawed, but was still world champion. Um, and the WBA told me that if Richard Arnold didn't, didn't, didn't fight me, that I was going to get rewarded the full WBA world title. Um, he never, I think, sort of must have, a brown envelope must have happened under the table and Crawler box Perez and I got left to go and fight Teddy Flanagan and it's just, it is what it is, but it's not where crying over spilt milk now. No, but these are the kinds of politics, Matt, that, that come into operation when you get right up towards that, towards that top level and it's, I guess, when you've been around the block as many times as you two have, it's it's fairly easy to be philosophical about it, or rather, it's easier for you than I think it probably would be for me. But a, a third a third fight with Crawler would have been it just would have been a terrific occasion. I mean, I, I know that Flanagan Matthews was Manchester against Liverpool as well, but I think we all wanted to see a third one between those two. Yeah, absolutely. And Flanagan's a you know one of the, he's one of those southpaws. He's part of the big work rate, you know, not a great talker, not, didn't have big backing. He was never going to be a marquee fighter, but he was always going to be a tough person to beat where, there he said it there, he may well have been Crawler's bogeyman and I think Joe Gallagher just didn't want the fight. And, and yet as well, you talk about momentum in a career and we talk about real careers and sometimes, and about narratives and things like this. And when you've got good momentum and that the public are buying into your story and the TV are behind you, you're, you're riding a bit of a crest of a wave where Derry, he was the bogeyman. He never really had that, you know what I mean? He could have, at this stage anyway, I'm not saying early on in his career, he may have had it, but at this point in his career, he didn't. But he was still a dangerous, dangerous guy. He could crack really hard. He obviously had uh, Crawler's number a little bit because they even drew after that. You know, so te- you know, Crawler was very good at bouncing in a range, a great feet. You know, he was a good fighter, a really good fighter. But I think Derry just read him, you know what I mean? And he obviously had that equaliser. Uh, you know, and he knew how to hurt Crawler. So I think he, he, he starts making fights and I think he, he was a bit of a bogeyman for Crawler. And Crawler was, you know, Gallagher's gym was really, uh, you know, really bouncing at the time. He was really, you know, success, pretty success. And they were really having their day. And I just think that from a managerial point of view, you know, I'd imagine Joe Gallagher was just looking at Derry thinking, don't need him. You know, we've gone there twice. You got stopped. You got the draw. Nah, 
forget that one. We don't need to go there again. It's not right for you. And, you know, Derry didn't really bring enough to the table to make it attractive, to, to, to make the risk worthwhile. It's that risk-reward ratio and the risk outweighed the reward in that fight. So I think Joe Gallagher, Tim Crowder, I think they did the right thing by swerving him and, and just moving on with other things. And like you say, they got the they got the green things, you know, they got the break, that they got the world title shot. Things broke for them where Derry ended up with Terry Flanagan, didn't really get the break and, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. How important was it for you to to have that British title though? Because you won it again against against Martin Gethin. How important was it to get towards the end of the career and or, or to, to the actual end and be able to look back and yes, you fought for a world title and everybody wants to do that, but You've got two big belts there in the British and Commonwealth titles that mean a lot to fighters. I mean, how important was it for you to have those on your mantelpiece? Look, I, I'll always say, I, I, I might be one of them, I'm, I'm an honest fighter, and, I, and I'd say I overachieved in, in certain things. Um, I didn't expect to have a long career of 52 fights. Um, but at the same time, I worked hard and I, and I had a good back and I had a good team behind me. So it made me, you know, I always say, I know boxing's a one-man sport, but without the people around you, without the people guiding you, um, I don't think I would, I would have been in the position I was in. And having them belts, you know, sitting on my mantelpiece, having a great amateur career, I won every national title available as an amateur. Um, I won 10 professional titles as a, as a professional. So I'd, I'd say I've, t- I've ticked every box that I wanted to tick. I've boxed for every single belt, including the European, World, British, Commonwealth, English Masters, English title, so we'll be all into the um, IBO international belts. And, you know, I've ticked every box. Um, and I'd say I've, got a, I've had a career what up-and-coming fighters will, will dream of. Derry, if I'd have said to you the t- first time we met at Crystal Palace, listen, Derry, you're going to turn pro, you're going to do this, you're going to win that, you're going to do all the things you've done, you'd have beat my arm off, wouldn't you? And your feet. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's what you've got to look at it yeah. and be happy. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm, for me as well, Matt, I mean, obviously I've won loads of belts and whatever, but I've met good people, I've met friends for life. Um, I've been all over the world sparring. I've, I've sparred numerous world champions, British champions, medical people in yourself and, and everyone you know involved in sports. I mean, even every promoter in the game, I've always, I get on with them, I, I shake their hands. Um, and that's just the way I, I am, basically. And even like now what I'm doing with my amateur boxing club, you know, my aim now is to, is to produce champions and 
I've had the na- I've had the national final. I've got two in the England squad, and I've only been gone for two seasons, so I feel we're going in the right way. So we'll have a quick chat about about that in a few minutes because it's um, God, it's a uh, it's such an important time for amateur gyms at the moment. But just to pick up on something you said there, that you had a career that lots of pros would would love to go on and have. I absolutely agree with that. What I'm curious to know is, do you think that there are that many young pros now who could go on to have the kind of career that you had? Because would they be prepared to take the kind of risks and fights that you took? Because when when we were talking to Anthony, I said to him, four fighters who, one still going in Ricky Burns, but four fighters who I always looked at over the last few years as being a great example for all, all boxers were you, him, Ricky Burns, Stuart Hall, because you've all got to the very top of the sport, box for world titles. There's a, an unbelievable amount of belts between a lot of you, but there's probably about 35, 40 defeats as well. But that's almost the best thing about it because it shows that that actually doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I think after the boxers now, I think Matt might have given me a, do you want to be social media boxers? There's loads of there's loads of them who just want to be all over social media. Uh, I'm in the gym. I've got the best gloves on. The best. Just don't go and have a fight. Just want to. You want? I want. As I'm a boxing fan, foremost, and I, I want to see good fights. And I'd pay good money. I, I like to go and watch. I go and watch most amateur boxing shows and the proper fights. You don't know who's going to win, and that's what I, that's what I think the pro game needs. Though I think Liverpool fighters, open coming fighters, you know. We should start having more in Liverpool. We have a central area title. We should start having more of them. For me, you should have to win an area title before you win a box or a British title or an English title and go up the ladder. And that way, people aren't getting to 20 and all, getting beat once and then retiring. Years ago, in the old years and years ago, they used to, the good matchmakers used to say, Show me an undefeated fighter and I'll show you a kid that can't fight. In other words, saying he'd been mollycoddled, protected, hadn't fought no one. Where, you know, what you're saying there, in most, like in the amateurs, you've got to win your Northwest or the Midlands area before you can become an ABA champion. You've got to win your area. So, you know, by the time you win it, get to the final, you're already proven and tested to a degree. And that will never happen, probably, you know, it'll never happen that way. But it's, there's something to it, you know. You, you've got to earn. Your, you've got to pay your dues in boxing. And Andy mentioned there about all those losses between yourself, Ricky Burns, Stewie Hall, and I think Crawler was the one. But you know, and I remember when I, you know, I was managing a lot of fighters, um, you know, before I stepped away from MTK. And I won't mention any names, but there are a lot of guys that you talked about want to be boxers on social media that I've come into them with a great offer, and I'm thinking, oh, I can't believe I've got this off this deal for them. And they're turning down the fight. And I'm like, you, you, why? Do you know what I mean? Because And they're terrified of losing. And it wasn't, I'm not looking to get anyone beat. You know what I mean? I'm trying to, but I'm stacking it in their favour. But it's an educated risk. And it's a fight. It's a competitive fight. They should win it. But if they're not up to it, it could get beat. But certainly the money, the, the, the platform, the stage, where they were in their career, it was a no-brainer. I, I was expecting yeah. them to put their arm off. And they were turning it down. And I thought to myself, like I said, I won't mention names, but there was a few people I thought, you don't really want to be a fighter. You just no. want to be on social media telling everyone you're undefeated. Exactly. Even like later on in my career, Matt, obviously MTK managed me and 
I didn't know what I was. I just got for the fight. I didn't even ask what money because I knew I was in the best interest. I had the best heart, and I knew I was getting looked after. So I didn't. I just said, "Get off the fight. I don't want the fight." I was ask, actually asking MTK for, "Can you get us that fight? Please get me that fight." Because I want to. I want to fight people. I want to fight the best, and I felt that I'd, I'd done that. Um, and I hope you. I hope your promoters now make the kids fight each other, especially now with after lockdown. I think a lot of them won't have to get a move on and and and, and fight. Uh, obviously, if it's still going to be behind closed doors, you know the viewers want to see good fights. You don't want to see everyone in the red corner or the blue corner win. I don't think that's going to be a good thing because of lockdown. I think that when these shows come back, because there's such a hunger that for to fighters to get out there, but also there's no gate, so it's not. It doesn't matter if you're a big ticket seller. You ain't getting a gimmick, you know what I mean? Just because yeah. you're selling tickets. There, there is no gate. So, basically, you're, we, we need competitive match-up 50-50. Yeah. So, if you believe in yourself, then do it. Exactly. 100%, mate. I, I love the idea of of winning an area title or an English title being a requirement to, to box for the British title. I think that would be great. And most of the time, People will have done that, but but not always. And and other countries are really jealous of that that ladder we have, that pathway. Because in European countries, uh, for example, I've covered a lot of boxing in in Germany and Denmark. They don't have that, and to have that ladder of titles, it means you become a champion, and then you have challenges, and you know that it's going to be a real fight because whoever's coming to challenge you, even though you, let's say you're a really good fighter, you might be a lot better than them, and this is is the first step. But they're going to really want it, and that you know that is so much more valuable than just having yet another yet another tick over. So the system we have here is, I mean, it's envied by a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, look, building a fighter, it's a balance. Do you know what I mean? You're not looking, you don't want to be throwing someone in, in in the deep end, you know, thrown into a fight they're not ready for. When you're managing a fighter, trying to fight, you're bringing them through and you want to keep stepping them up. You don't want to move them too quickly where they lose to somebody that they would have beaten in maybe two or three more fights' time. You know, they just weren't experienced enough. You know, it's like going through, you know, stepping them up to six rounds to eight rounds to ten rounds and, you know, stepping up the levels, getting them a few different styles, getting them a southpaw early on because they're going to face southpaws, getting them a tall guy, short guy. It's easy to build the record. Anyone can go on box rec and get 20 guys with terrible records who are going to lose. And, you know, if you're a ticket seller and they put the money's there in the pot, you can get, you can, you can build anyone to 20 and 0. It's easy. To build someone up, stepping him up, giving him the education where he's going through experience, but he's, he's, he's extending him, but he's getting the win. That's what building a fighter is. That's that. That's what matchmaking and managing is all about. It's building the guy, bringing him along at the right pace, and there will be risks along the way. But it's you know that's where your experience and expertise comes in. It's educated risks, so you you, you, you want. Stacking in your man's favour, you want him. You want him to go through situations. He's going to lose a couple of rounds. He might get cut, but coming through that and winning the fight, he's a better fighter. He's going to go up tenfold rather than being in there beating another guy who's, I don't know, six and twenty, who's coming for a few quid and just wants to get through the rounds and hopefully he doesn't get stopped because he wants the box in two weeks' time. He's learning nothing from that fight. You know, there's a time and a place for people like that. If someone pulls out, and there's no one else, or maybe his first couple. But building a fighter, you know, like you say, we talk about real records. Derry, when he was when he when he had his 
when he had those wins against Kryler, and he'd lost loads of fights, but he'd learned his trade. He was, do you know what I mean? He was the finished article. In those losses, he would I guarantee you, he would have learned more from those losses than beating 10 journeymen. <laughs> Matt, do you think when we were fighting, when you, obviously when you were first competing as a pro, that the journeyman standards was a lot higher than they are now? Yeah, I think, but I think there was a lot more. Remember Nabi Nams? He had the logs of Brian oh, yeah. Buckley. Yeah. These guys had 300 fights. Do you know what I mean? I boxed box Peter Buckley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? They were, they were crafty. They were journeymen and they knew the score and they'll have a little good. If you weren't up to it and he fancied it, he'll go through. But nine times out of ten, if you're a Frank Warren prospect, you're an ABA champion, whatever, you'd be too you'd be too much for Peter Buckley. And he'd know that after the first round. And he'd just took, took up then and survive and get through it. But, you know, you'd, at that stage in your career, it, it, it served the purpose. But if you're just fighting people like that, you're only going to stay at a certain level. So in, or, in order to progress and develop and become the, to achieve your potential, you need, you need fights that are going to ask questions of you. You need learning fights, tough fights. Not, you don't want to be, you don't want to get to the top and be so shop worn because you've had that many wars trying to get there that you've got nothing left by the time you get there. But you do have to be battle hardened. You know, you know, there's a difference. You can't be just smiley cuddled. And then you, you all of a sudden you fight for world title, and you're completely out of your depth because you've never gauged that gap. You need these in between these step up fights because you, you, you have to be battle hardened. But by the time you get there, you have to not only be there, you've got to be there, you've got to be at that level and be able to win at that level. But if you've gone from fighting twenty journeymen, you won't be able to do it. Well, more area title fights. That's what that's what that's what I want because it's just the gift that keeps on giving. I've seen so many good ones over the last over the last few years. I absolutely love it. Um, before we let you go, Derry, we won't keep you too much longer. But let's have a quick chat about what it's like running an amateur club and particularly the current situation because we're recording this on Tuesday, the twenty third, and government guidelines have come out today. Um, which will be quite old news by the time people listen to this. But they've basically said that it's fine to go to the pub and go to restaurants and go to the cinema, uh, but we can't open gyms yet. Now, I, to an extent, I understand why they might not want the kind of mass market gyms open, but why that's any more dangerous than going to the pub, I couldn't really tell you. But when it comes to specialist gyms, like boxing gyms or combat sport gyms, where the footfall... Uh, Tris Dixon put it well uh, in the tweet I saw earlier. The footfall is nowhere near the same and you've got a much more dedicated but smaller membership. They've got to they've got to rethink that one. Hopefully by the time people listen to this, they, they will have because as a, as a gym owner, as somebody who runs a gym and wants to get his kids back in there and training and, and get them, you know, gainfully um, off the streets again, it must be driving you insane. Yeah, it, it's listen. It's I think we're gonna we might end up losing a lot of kids, um, you know, playing on the stupid games or you know, obesity plays a massive part in fitness as well. And you know, kids are mature and all different ages, and obviously not allowed to go around and hang in gangs because they're on lockdown. But not not being able to open an amateur boxing club for me is is a bit, a bit pathetic because we should be able to do it in, in small groups. Um, I've, I'm lucky enough that I've got a huge car park in my gym so we've just had about 30 kids out before and I had to put them in certain groups with each coach 
but again, it's it's so frustrating. I'm trying to run a, a massive amateur club. I always I try and put a show on every month for the club. Um, and, you know, it's just frustrating. We, want to, we had a couple of lads going in the national championships, a couple of girls as well, and they've all been cancelled. And I think England boxing are, are waiting to make a big decision on what we're going to do with the, um, with the rest of the year. Uh, I've got a, someone said to me that they might call it till the end of the year and, and go for January for the fresh start. But we just have to wait and see. And fingers crossed, next week sometime they'll re they'll redo the um, the rules and we could get back in there. Because the ABH, the National Amateur Championships, as as, as are now being called, the NACs, was supposed to be late April, wasn't it? So lockdown came at an absolutely terrible time in terms of preparations for that because obviously you've got to get through the regionals and and it's played havoc with absolutely everybody but but the amateur situation is one that is of particular concern as is the, the small hall scenario too because we're all looking forward to boxing being back and we see the top rank shows and, and uh, BT are coming back on July the 10th Sky not that long after that but that's it's like, you know, football existed before the Premier League. Boxing exists outside of Sky and BT. You know, the, the grassroots and the beating heart of it is outside of that level. And that's what really matters. Yeah, for, for me, grassroots boxing is the way forward. And even, even even the pro shows, I think boxing behind, I mean, me and Matt are used to it going away with England and, and being at certain events. But I'm, like, so I'm training Jazz and Dickens now with George and, he, he doesn't mind boxing behind closed doors, but certain fighters like fans, certain fighters have, have own comfort in having having a big following, and you know certain certain fighters might struggle. And even the, the kids, I'm just I'm just going for the kids at, at the gym and, and the area where I live, and you know just we used to have from sixty to hundred kids every day coming in the gym, in and out all day. We're like we're like conveyor belts, and just bring champions to and, and generate some good kids and. You know, it's, it's frustrating at times. And even the coaches, I mean, I'm lucky enough that we've got 10 amateur coaches, but they're leaving me losing interest. You know, you, they might have to go and find, the, obviously, the, the voluntary amateur boxing's all voluntary, but they might go and find a job. We might get them back in the gym. They might go and find a job away away from, from boxing or doing, doing something in, in supermarkets and they might come back. They might, they might fall, fall full-time coach, uh, workers. So how do you find, how do you find life in the corner? How do you find watching, coaching, sending them out there and knowing that when they climb those steps, there's there's nothing you can do? Well, what, I, I get more of a satisfaction out of being this side of the ropes, believe it or not. Like someone said to me the other day, you must miss it. I said, I've had no time to miss it. I remember getting beat by a while of Davies on the Saturday. On the Monday, on the Monday morning, Georgie Vaughan had me on the pads, on a holding pads for JJ Metcalf. <laughs> so I was like, I, thought, I had no time to, you know, to to look back and, and and miss the game. And I always knew I had my amateur club in the background setting up. I'm lucky enough to just keep saying I've got top coaches and I know where I wanted to go in life. I'm, I'm from a top amateur boxing club, the Solly, and I know for a fact that I would have been welcome with open arms in there to be a coach in there but 
I wanted to do something on me on my own. I, I felt that I've had a good career, and I wanted to put something back into the sport I love. I'm also now a member of the Merseyside Cheshire Committee. I've been nominated to go on the committee there, and I just want to keep growing. I'm going to try and go for me, me um, judges badges as well, and just just keep learning and just keep doing what I what I can do, and I keep moving forward in the sport. And as I keep saying, I always say to people, I love I love the game, and I want to put something back every all the time. That's really interesting, actually. So you would you would want to be a judge for fights because this is one area that, that, that former fighters hardly, rarely, well, not as much as you might think would go into. You, you look at uh, Ian John Lewis was a pro, Bob Williams was a pro, um, but you don't see as many of them in the middle as referees or round the outside as judges as as, as you would think. No, um, Matt, told, no, it was Dave Mulholland. Dave Mulholland was a, a top um, amateur fighter, a, a decent pro. He's in the middle of doing his refereeing course now. He's going to be a pro ref. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't want to go, I'm not going to be saying, oh, I'm going to be a, a judge, I want to do this. I just want to see from a judge's point how they score fights, and especially for amateur boxing, because amateur boxing, I've seen some people not win a, not land a shot, but win the rounds, and I'm like, I don't get it. So I want to sit on a couple of judges' courses and, and just learn, just keep learning the trades. I learn every day. In boxing, you never stop learning, and you know I, I want my CV to keep to keep going up. And if it takes being a judge to do that, I'll, I'll do it. Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting approach to take, and uh, yeah, I'm all for that. I'm all for that. I'm a Southern Area Council member due to the fact that I've got an MC's license, which I never use, but I keep renewing it, renewing it because you get you get the opportunity to to go to the meetings and and see what's going on and 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 chat to people about you know, rule changes and, and, and stuff like that. Stuff that doesn't really interest other people, but but very much interests interest me. Uh, so anyway, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for your time. Like I said at the start, I remember that fight so well from, uh, from Oldham in April 2012. I remember it being this freezing cold, ridiculous day at the weigh-in where it absolutely hammered it down all afternoon. And uh, just seeing Lucas Brown, who was there from Australia, coming to England for the first time, like huddled in a big kind of hoodie and tracksuit, couldn't quite believe what was happening. But it was a sensational atmosphere on the night uh, because you brought great support. Anthony had great support, and it all just kind of exploded in the third round when you when you put him down. And and after that, it was uh, it was frenetic stuff. And it was yeah, I mean, it was a very very memorable night for you. So hopefully, we get to see you soon um you've got jazza of course in the final of the golden contract against ryan walsh which will happen i would hope that's a good fight that is it's a great fight that it's a it's a tough fight it's a it's too i know what matt it's one of them where it's two genuine fighters who don't have to backlash each other they, they just they're both genuine they're the same kind of person if you know what i mean they're like yeah, they're good two good fighters yeah, two genuine lads, no no bad mouth, no trash talk. Just two good lads. Have a fight and shake hands after it. Walsh, after the last fight, Walsh has actually put a bet on Jazza to win. And after the fight, he come to change it. He was a past Jazza some money. <laughs> that's what that's what kind of that's what kind of person he is. I hope the British boxing board of control aren't listening to this. Um but uh, it, it was really interesting those semi-finals because 
Jazza, he, he played a very good game in the build-up against Lee Wood because he he seemed to get under his skin very successfully. And a couple of times, he looked like he was kind of losing it himself, Jazza. But then, actually, I could see when he stepped back that, that he hadn't at all, that it was all for show and that he was actually ice cool. But it was it was very... And I think it worked. I, I do think it worked because Lee Wood just... I could tell from, from talking to him after the way in that he was he was riled up whereas Jazza was was ice cool really. Jazz Jazza's mentally stronger than anyone I've ever I've ever seen in my life. Um and, and he's a he's a prop he's a proper fighter and he knows even the fight before that when he tried to give the fellow a hug on the stage, he just gets he just knows how to play people. And I thought he played Lee Lee very well. Um and you know, I'm going back to his amateur days when he's already beat him and he just knew what to say. And I think Lee, you know, I thought Lee, you know, he he, he got to him. He just thought he was going to, you know, he was angry. He was angry at the weigh-in and he was angry at the press conference and that. And, you know, Jazza, I thought Jazza performed superb that night. And now one judge, I think one judge gave it a draw or one judge gave it by a round. I, I just don't know how. But as you say, it was a good win, really good win, and that that that's a great fight. That is a great fight between him and him and Ryan Walsh. And whoever wins that will very much have earned that that contract, which is on offer uh, for whoever wins uh, the golden contract. And yeah, I mean, just talking about those kinds of fights makes you realise how how much we need how much boxing. we missed it, how yeah, much we missed it, we miss it. <laughs> yeah, and how much we need it back. Um, so, gents, we'll 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 leave it there. Um, Derry, thanks very much. Hopefully, we'll see you soon. Matt, likewise, shouldn't be shouldn't be too long now. And for everybody listening, thanks thanks for tuning in. And we will catch you again next time. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.